Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Orlando Howard. Orlando is the manager of outpatient services at Rosary Hall, St. Vincent Charity Medical Center. Orlando, welcome. Nice to have you here with us. So tell us a little bit about how you happened to get into the field of uh, addiction recovery services. Well, Greg, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, being here. Um, I got into the addiction field through a couple of different ways. One is the death of my sister who was murdered in 1986 as a result of her uh, cocaine addiction and alcohol addiction. And the second reason, uh, my own substance abuse issues. I am a a member in long-term recovery. And um, when my sister was murdered in 1986, uh, I decided to um, go into treatment and get my life together. So that brought you to dedicating your life to helping others in their recovery. So how long have you been in that field? Well, I started in the recovery field um, actually in 1992. Uh, started in 1992 as I worked at a, a hospital here in Cleveland uh, on Broadway Avenue, and I worked there for five years in their detox unit. And I was what they would call a resident assistant today and my job was to help the, the patients get, get to meetings within the hospital and the detox unit, greet them when they first came in, talk to them about any issues they would have. That was in 1992. Okay. And then, you know, from 92 to 97, I went to another agency. I worked there for 10 years and did some work in dual diagnosis. And, um, and then I came here to St. Vincent's Charity Medical Center almost 10 years ago, and I've been here ever since. Okay. So you've seen a lot in your career, but I'll bet nothing compared to the opioid epidemic since it's taken off. Can you describe what you witnessed? Sure, Greg. Um, I began, you know, working here at Rosary Hall in 2007. And and when I came here um, nine years ago, we had a 13-bed detoxification unit. On one wing of the floor was the detox unit, and on the other wing was the sleep lab. So we only had 13 beds. And um, today, we have 27 beds. That's more than a 50% increase. Um, And 90% 
of the people that we have on our detox unit are addicted to some form of opiates and mainly heroin. Um, I've also seen um, younger and younger people suffering from this disease. Um, we treat adults here, um, but we are, are, are seeing younger individuals, uh, 18, 19, 20 years of age that are um, addicted to, to opiates. Um, it's just sad that 40, 50 years ago, uh, there were, I tell people there were 40, 50, 60 year old men in detoxes yeah. suffering from alcoholism or females. The face of addiction has changed. The average age on our unit now is around 27. Wow. Um, My son was 28. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the average age. And, um, you know, I've also, uh, you know, we tell folks that, you know, 20 years ago we admitted five to seven opiate addicts uh, a week. Um, today, Greg, we admit five to seven in a day. And uh, that's a staggering number, a staggering increase. Fentanyl use has uh, increased in the patients that we see. Uh, and I recall you telling me a little bit about your story and your son. Uh, but we know that fentanyl use is, is killing more people daily along with heroin because a lot of our patients don't really know what they're getting. Yeah. Um, opiate death this year uh, in Cuyahoga County is estimated to reach about 500 uh, this year alone, just in this county. Um, we've had, we've had patients who I've spoken to who will tell me that they first started using opiates as a result of a foot injury, a sports injury, ankle injury. Um, and I remember talking to the Brants and, uh, they were telling me that they lost their son, Robbie, but he had a wisdom tooth pull, uh, and that's how he got started. So, um, uh, we also understand that about 30 to 40 percent of the population suffer some some type of addiction, whether it be food, gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol, um, etc. Mm -hmm. So what should people know about the resources that are available here at Rosary Hall for help? Well, Rosary Hall. Uh, the first thing is that we have two of the leading addiction medicine specialists uh, in this reason, in this region, I'm sorry. And that would be Dr. Chris Edelman and Dr. Ted Parent. Um, since 1952, Rosary Hall has treated over 62,000 individuals. Um, it was started by Sister Mary Ignatia with the help of uh, uh, the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. So prior to her coming here in 1952, uh, she worked hand-in-hand -hand with Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith, a.k.a. Dr. Bob, uh, and Bill Wilson in Akron, Ohio. Uh, what folks should know about Rosary Hall is that we are a 12-step abstinence-based program. Uh, we are also um, use motivational interviewing, which is meeting the patient where they are. Um, what does that mean? Well, um, years ago, when folks would come to treatment, the conventional way of treating addicts or alcoholics was, was not meeting them where they were. They wanted the patient to be where you wanted them to be. Okay. Today is, let's meet the patient where they are. 
So if the patient is, um, like say different stages, the patient may be in pre-contemplation stages, the stages of change, or they could be in the contemplation stage where pre-contemplation basically means I don't want treatment, I don't want help, leave me alone. Okay. Contemplation means I'm contemplating having someone to help me. So this is all, this is figuratively speaking, where you meet, meet them where they are emotionally in terms of their acceptance of going into treatment. Correct. Okay. Exactly. And that's vital. That's vital to meeting the patient where they are because we know that with motivational interviewing, it has, it has been proven that it works. And each patient is, is, is individualized. We don't have cookie cutter treatment plans here. And no treatment center should have cookie cutter treatment plans yeah. because each client is their own individual person. Um, we also have offer uh, here at St. Vincent's uh, a hospital-based inpatient detoxification program, which I talked about earlier. So, and, you know, that first step is just so, so important, having that available right away. Having, you know, when somebody says that, hey, I want help, having that bed available, your detox beds to them. So right now, what kind of wait times do you have? Well, actually, we have a same-day, next-day admission. Here at St. Vincent's, we don't like to call it a wait list. Okay. We like to call it maybe a pending list, but not a wait list. Um, we contract with the Adams Board of Cuyahoga County, and you're very familiar with Mr. Chief Denahan there, um, and uh, to provide opiate detoxification for indigent opiate addicts that live in Cuyahoga County. And for those individuals, it is same day or next day admission. And the reason why, Greg, is because when a, when a, a, a potential patient gets off the elevator and they say, I want help, they want help now, not put on a waiting list and told to come back in four or five days. Because in four or five days, their situation is going to be different. They may have ran into some finances. They may have ran into some friends. They, the consequences of their use may have, are not as severe four or five days later. But once they say, I need help, we believe that that patient should be put in a bed the same day or next day as quickly as possible. So out in our community, there is a perception that there is nowhere where they can get help now. So this is really refreshing. Um, so does this pertain to just our county, just Cuyahoga County? Or what about those that would want help that would be maybe in adjoining counties? How would that work? Um, well, when it comes to detox, um, Medicaid, uh, there's different types of Medicaid. When it comes to detox, um, some out-of-county Medicaids uh, we accept. Uh, when it comes to people who live out-of-county, let's say, for instance, uh, in Summit or Lorraine or Geauga uh, County, uh -huh. um, and they have uh, no insurance, they would have to go to that the Adams Board in that county to receive detoxification services if they're indigent. If they live in Cuyahoga County, they can come here to Rosary Hall, mm -hmm. and if they meet the uh, the qualifications, then we can admit them into detox, um, same day, next day. 
See, that's fantastic. So how would they do that? Would they just come here, show up? Is there a number to call for them? Actually, there's a few ways. Uh, there is a number, uh, 216-363-2580, extension 4. Uh, they can also log on to our, our website. Uh, we have a Rosary Hall link uh, for uh, resources and information or they could just walk in. Um, if they choose to walk in, our hours of operation are uh, 8.15 in the morning, and we're here till normally 7 o'clock in the evening, 6 or 7 o'clock. But the best way, Greg, is for them to reach us is by um, the 216-363 number, 2580. Okay, outstanding. I also wanted to, to just touch bases um, on this piece is that we accept most major insurances. Um, some insurance companies pay for inpatient detoxification for opiates and some insurances don't. Mm -hmm. Some insurances will actually pay for an ambulatory detox or an outpatient detox. Uh, but we being a hospital, uh, we don't just treat the indigent, we also treat people who have some type of medical coverage. Uh, but once again, if they don't have medical coverage and they live in this county, uh, they can get treatment uh, at no cost to them. Okay. Outstanding. So um, let me put you on the spot for a second. If you had unlimited resources, what would you do to solve this problem, the, the opioid, this exploding epidemic that we have? That's a great question. Unlimited resources, if you could wave your magic wand. The first thing I would do, I would invest in education and prevention. And starting with our children, um, as young as seventh grade. I've met seventh and eighth graders at different high schools who know what a um, Skittles party is. Some parents don't even know what a Skittles party is. I've met seven. Explain what that is. A Skittles party for seventh and eighth graders and uh, maybe ninth and tenth graders. Teenagers are where you visit your friend's houses and you ask to use the restroom and you go in the bathroom and you search through the medicine cabinet. If there's a mom or a grandma or grandpa there that has a serious medical condition, let's say cancer of some sort, they're going to have some pretty powerful, potent medications. Um, and they're going to just, you know, collect medications from wherever they can get them. They bring them to the party and they put them in a bowl. And they all look like Skittles because they're all different colors. They mix them up. They turn their back. They reach in. They grab one and they take it having no knowledge of what the pill is. That's a Skittles party. Um, seventh and eighth graders can tell us what monkey juice is. It is Visine. Yes, Visine eye drops that they inject opiate heroin into the Visine, and then they use the Visine and drop the opiates through the Visine in their eyes. So it gets into the bloodstream through the blood vessels in the eyes. That's called monkey juice. But I would start, you know, at, at with our seventh graders. Uh, second, I would invest in educating our doctors. Uh, the United States Surgeon General Admiral Dr. Vivek Murthy was here 
a couple of months ago on President Obama's Turn the Tide tour. Yep, I saw him. And he was here, um, and he met with uh, a couple of our, uh, he wanted to meet with a patient who was in recovery and a patient that was in the, on the detox unit in, act, in actual withdrawal. Um, but, and he talked about educating more doctors about prescribing medicine and how some docs will over-prescribe meds. Uh, if I go in for a, a torn meniscus in my knee, uh, I don't need 60 days worth of Percocets. Uh, but there's some physicians that are not knowledgeable enough about addiction and people being predispositioned to addiction uh, that they're prescribing more meds than they necessarily would. The third thing, Greg, I would do is I would have a holistic treatment facility. Uh, and it would work in phases. I believe that uh, treatment is, we know that people that stay in treatment longer tend to do better. So I would have a treatment facility uh, that worked in phases. And that would include maybe a 5 to 10 day detox, possibly followed by a 30 to 60 day residential inpatient treatment program. Following that, by a six-month halfway house or living. Uh, and while attending five weeks of uh, four days a week of intensive outpatient programming and followed by eight weeks of non-intensive outpatient treatment, which would be two days a week, and then followed by one year of living in a halfway house or sober house, um, and then possibly have a partnership with Eaton HUD to provide subsidized housing. Now, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Okay, that's I, a mouthful. I couldn't even keep up with you as I was taking notes. That is a mouthful. That is. But but that speaks to the power of this addiction. That speaks to the fact that, you know, for the average person, you know, they can get it out of the rest of their system, but not their brain in, in short order. Their brain is going to take at least 35 months to get it out. Yeah, addiction is a brain disease. Um, it's, a, it's a disease like any other disease. Cancer, hepatitis, you could have lung diabetes. disease, diabetes. It's a, it's a brain disease. Uh, but treatment, what, what I've seen over the years is that people who stay in treatment tend to do much longer, tend to do much better. Uh, detox is not the, the, the answer. You go to detox for five to ten days and you get out of detox uh, and you don't follow it up with any type of treatment, um, your chances of staying clean for any length of time is basically nil. But people who attend residential or inpatient treatment or an intensive outpatient treatment program, followed by some type of non-intensive outpatient or aftercare and sober living, we found that they are more successful because they're giving their brains time to heal. The brain has been hijacked by opiates. The brain has been rewired by opiates. And treatment gives the brain time to heal. The addict is used to living, I'll put it to you this way. Um, the recovering addict is one of the very few people that have an opportunity to live two lives. Hmm. The using life mm -hmm. is one life, mm -hmm. and the sober life is another life. 
And what we try to do is help people's brains to heal so they can adjust to living a sober life. The majority of addicts um, need time to work on their thinking. And so staying in treatment long term will give them time to do that. So what's your definition of long term, Orlando? Well, uh, as long as I'm breathing, I'll be in recovery. Okay. I so, never graduate. Yeah. So in terms of the structured program, the ideal program that you outlined, um, what are we talking about? Two years there? About two years. About two yes. years. Okay, great. So, and with that, they dramatically, with that amount of structure and that amount of a program, they dramatically improve their odds of success long-term. Correct. What other factors? Can you speak to those that they're surrounded with, those that I call their team, and the um, their odds of success based upon maybe the size of the team? When you say team, the treatment team? So, or? I mean, their coach, their, you know, their sponsor, their, uh, the people that they know, their peers. Absolutely. Recovery peers, their family, their spiritual leader. Um, those collectively are what I refer to as the team. Right. The support system yes. um, is key. It's key to a person's recovery. Um, I have a great support system. I'm a person in, in long-term recovery, and uh, I have a very supportive family. I mean, if it hadn't been for my family standing behind me during my, my good moments as well as my bad moments throughout my relapses before I got to where I am today, I probably wouldn't be here. Um, having sponsors that have traveled this road before that can teach you what to do and what not to do, what's good for your recovery and what's not. Having uh, spiritual leaders in your life, improving your spiritual contact, uh, uh, increasing your spiritual contact, whether that be with uh, a higher power or something that you, more personal to you as God or Jesus or Allah or whatever you choose to call it. Um, I believe that associating with people who are actually doing the same thing that you are doing. In other words, there's a saying, Greg, that if a bald head man stands outside of a barbershop long enough, sooner or later he's going to go in and get a haircut. And so if a recovering addict in their early stages of recovery hang around negative people, people that are still using, people that still have a negative lifestyle, sooner or later they're going to get a haircut and they're going to use and possibly relapse. But that's no guarantee that they're going to make it back to recovery. So having that support network is key to addicts that are listening today. And I, I basically beg of you to continue going to meetings, continue working with your sponsors, continue seeing your therapist if you're set up to see a therapist, and you continue to do that. If something is working, why would you want to, you know, if it's not broken, Greg, why would you want to try and fix it? So I think um, for many families, probably have the same experience that we had with Sam and didn't realize it, um, whereby uh, there was times when Sam would say, 
in his recovery would say, well, you know, that sponsor, he and I really didn't get along. And, you know, I'm doing fine without the sponsor. And those meetings, those, you know, I, I used to go, but really I'm not getting as much out of it. And, and I'm doing fine without that. So, you know, in uh, retrospect, those were huge red flags. Yes. This team has fallen away. We, we didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I could go back and change things, what would, what would the, the approach that you would recommend that a family takes when they hear those red flags come up about the team falling away, the team you're in treatment, you're kind of building the support network, and it starts eroding? That should send off warning bells, shouldn't it, for the family? And what does the family do? Yeah, it should send off red flags and warning bells. I believe that a couple things the family can do. First of all, they have to be knowledgeable of what the warning signs are. And once they are aware of what the warning signs are, do, do not ignore them. I mean, I would rather hurt your feelings now than have to bury you. So I'm going to hurt your feelings In other words, I would seek counseling, family counseling, family therapy, and um, because the 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 person who's still clean and sober, but they're stopped going to meetings, they're they stop working with their sponsor, they're no longer being active with their support group. uh, They need to understand that these are red flags, and in some cases. A lot of people may do interventions when it's just about when the person is at their worst moment. But why not an intervention when they're at the moment that we're talking about here today? Why not involve a licensed clinician? Why not involve your clergy? Why not involve your entire family? Uh, I mean, doing my personal life, um, during the time that I was sober, um, a lot of the, re- the reasoning why I continued to not give up on my recovery, even after I stopped doing a lot of things, was because of my family, and especially my children. You know, the contact that I had with my children and my family was, was vital. Um, and they were able to able to give me what we call in the treatment world tough love. So I believe that uh, our listeners should know that an intervention when someone is sober is a good thing. Uh, educating themselves once again about the warning signs of a relapse, because relapse happens before it happens, and those warning signs that you mentioned uh, are the things that that takes them to the next phase where they actually uh, move into uh, using the drug or that alcohol. So what other warning signs would there be that they should look for? Um, Well, when it comes to opiate addiction, it could be, uh, number one, it's going to be behavior. Has the behavior changed? Uh, Number two, uh, are they alienating themselves from the people in their lives who have been there to help them? Do they have new friends that you haven't seen before? Are they spending more hours out after dark than they normally would be? Um, 
I would also say that if it's uh, a spouse or a child, don't be afraid to go through their belongings. Don't be afraid to check purses, bags, gym bags, uh, workout bags. Uh, be nosy. Be nosy. Uh, look for those things. The warning signs are key. Um, and I believe that knowing what they are is critical. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, medicated assisted, assisted treatment is getting a lot of traction, getting a lot of press. Um, people are singing its praise in terms of the potential for you know, success, long-term success. Mm -hmm. um, so your program is abstinence only. Have you considered or will you consider in the future medicated assisted treatment? Well, um, we actually have a, when I say uh, abstinence only, I mean that, what I mean by that uh, is that if you're an alcoholic, you can't smoke weed. You can't do heroin. You can't do pills. If you're an opiate addict, you shouldn't smoke weed. You shouldn't do alcohol. That mm -hmm. type of abstinence. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But when it comes to MAT, uh, we do use Suboxone here. We have a grant with the Adams Board of Cuyahoga County that provides us with dollars to um, to put people on Suboxone uh, that uh, meet the criteria and uh, are willing. Uh, but I believe that medication-assisted treatment, um, this is 2016. This is in 1970. Um, back in the early days, there was, they had MAT and a lot of people tend to forget about this. It was called Anabuse oh. for alcoholics. Oh. You would take Anabuse and, um, if you drank alcohol on top of it, it made you deathly ill. Hmm. And, uh, but the stigma surrounding that back in those days was nowhere near what it is today when it comes to medication assisted treatment to Vivitrol to Suboxone. Um, and in the 12 step community, there are some people or some other uh, 12 step recovery programs and treatment facilities, as a matter of fact, that will say uh, if you're on Suboxone, you're not sober and yeah. you're not clean. Yeah. Um, I differ to that because um, I believe that if uh, they had had a um, a medication-assisted treatment program like Suboxone or Vivitrol, let's say 20 years ago, uh, a lot of people will still be alive today. What we're trying to do here, Greg, is keep people breathing in any way possible. I mean, there are some ways that, that, um, that I don't advocate for, uh, but there are other ways that I do, and medication-assisted treatment is one of them. I mean, I've seen it work. I've seen it work. Vivitrol is the new kid on the block. I've heard stories from people who said that it has changed their lives. So we are an advocate of medication-assisted treatment. Our medical director and associate medical director here uh, are also on board with it. And uh, we're going to continue to to fight this battle. And if that means with medication-assisted treatment, then that's what we're going to do. Outstanding. Speaking of programs that work, and uh, I've... Uh 
through our podcast series, I've had a chance to talk to other communities and learn about some of the programs that maybe are unique and they're doing that uh, we that I've uh, we'd like to bring to our community and kind of explore the possibilities for it. And I've got a couple of those that we've discovered that I just wanted to bounce off of you. One of them was in Baltimore. In Baltimore, they've made it, it a commitment to put naloxone in the medicine cabinets of all of the residents. So they want to put it into 620,000 medicine cabinets. Now, the unique thing about that is the statement that that makes about how important this is in their community. And the other unique thing about it is the education that takes place in the process of doing that and the, the fact that you can really work away at the stigma by doing that. So I just want to ask if you feel, in your experience, if that's something that maybe would be viable and worth consideration here in our community in Cuyahoga County. Absolutely. Uh, I believe you said 620,000. Right. Okay. And it probably would be safe to say, Greg, that in 620,000 households, there's a bottle of aspirin. Probably be safe I, to say that. I would think so. Okay. Yeah. And people, people take aspirin or Advil uh, to relieve a headache, to relieve some type of discomfort. Um, Putting naloxone or Narcan in every uh, medicine cabinet is something that would be great. I know that Project Dawn, uh, Deaf Avoided with Naloxone, has already been training and distributing Narcan or Naloxone uh, in this county for quite some time. And they've made a dramatic change. I don't know the numbers, but without it, uh, many, many, many more people who who are alive today wouldn't be alive without Narcan or Naloxone. Um, I know that they also have Project Dawn for walk-in centers uh, that you can go and get a kit for free. Uh, the more people that know about the disease, and I want to emphasize that word, Greg, disease of addiction, um, the more people that are educated about the disease of addiction, the more we can reduce the stigma. So putting Narcan or Naloxone in this county or this state in every medicine cabinet would be a wonderful thing because it's better to have it and don't need it than need it and don't have it. So in Boston, they have a program in place called SPOT, and that stands for Supportive Place for Observation and Treatment. SPOT offers engagement, support, and medical monitoring mm -hmm. and serves as an entryway to the primary care and treatment on demand for people that are in the process um, or in the whole process of providing this service. They get people off the street. Mm -hmm. In their community, they're finding that, you know, if you can imagine this, it's a room of lazy boys. And somebody who is in danger of passing out, this facility is available to them to come in and then be monitored by medical personnel and be offered help. What they found is that it's very effective in getting people off the street. It's very effective in terms of getting people help. And 
again, it's very effective in terms of making a statement in the community and mm-hmm. making a difference. What do you think, what are your thoughts, Orlando, of bringing a program like that here to Cleveland? Well, Greg, first of all, I want to say that addiction doesn't discriminate. Uh, it affects the homeless as well as the employed. Um, and I agree that the homeless are at a high risk for overdose because of the lack of resources that are available to them. And I believe that SPOT is offering those resources on the spot for those individuals. That makes sense. Also, often, Greg, the homeless won't seek treatment because of many reasons, but one is that they are not aware of any services for the homeless. And I think that's important that they are aware I also believe that the public needs to know that the homeless weren't born homeless and that uh, they had a mother, a father, and possibly some siblings, and they probably were even employed at some point in time in their life. There is a stigma that surrounds the homeless just like the stigma surrounding the drug addict. But the homeless have a dual stigma and reducing the harms associated with substance use in a population which lacks stable housing and support like SPOT is an excellent program. I believe that more people need to look into what they're doing in Baltimore uh, because sometimes I believe the homeless have are forgotten. Uh, People become homeless for many different reasons. Um, you have people who become homeless because of a loss of income, a loss of a job. Um, they could become homeless because of a mental illness, a mental health condition that causes them to isolate themselves from society. But this isn't something that most of them ask for. They weren't born homeless. And being homeless and being an addict on the street, your lifespan, I believe, has just been shortened because of the addiction and the lack of resources associated associated with being a homeless opiate addict. So having something like that in Cuyahoga County and in Ohio is something that I would support. Uh, I would support... Uh, getting treatment, detox, resources, housing, uh, medical issues that they have, dental, vision, all of this I would support. So it's important that that your listeners here uh, don't lose sight of the fact that the homeless are people too. And think about when the homeless were seven or eight years of age and they were outside in the yard uh, making streets out of bricks and pushing their Tonka toy trucks around and the girls were, you know, combing their dolls' hairs and the guys were playing with their G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip and the mom and dad were standing in the kitchen window looking out the window, hugging each other going, look at our babies, you know, those those are our babies, you know, those are our children. Um, and then imagine, and and this is something you probably wouldn't have to imagine because you and your wife have lived this and experienced this. Imagine now that same child 20 years later and he's 27 
and he's got an opiate addiction. In the back of the mind of a parent or a brother or a sister or a sibling, they still see that seven-year-old kid. And that's what we want back is that seven-year-old kid. That kid didn't ask for the life that they got as an opiate addict. Uh, when they went to have a wisdom tooth pour or get some ankle surgery or knee surgery done, they had no idea that they were going to become addicted. And, and the fight begins. So it's important to understand the same thing about the homeless. You know, they weren't always homeless. And uh, I believe reaching out to them is key. To help them is key. Yeah. Wow. Well, Orlando, what final thoughts would you like to share about the opioid epidemic in general? And specifically, perhaps, how our listeners can make a difference in their communities? Well, I do want to, in a final thought, is tell you a couple of things, Greg. And one is a success story. Um, we have a young lady who went through our detoxification program. She's, she's 30 years of age. Um, and uh, let's call her Brittany. And uh, she did five days of detox. She had been using for many, many years and just could never stop using, had been in outpatient treatment before, in residential treatment before, but just could never stop using. And she came to Rosary Hall and uh, we admitted her into our detoxification unit. And then we told her about Suboxone, about this grant that we had through the Adams Board. She said, I had never tried Suboxone the right way. I've tried it on the streets when I was using to not be, to have the withdrawal symptoms when I didn't have any money to get high, I used Suboxone. But she never really tried it the way it was meant to be prescribed and used. And that's the common way on the street that it's used. Correct. To keep from coming down because you can't until you make it to your next fix. Correct. So what she did was she signed up for our Suboxone grant. Five days of detox. From detox, she came to our intensive outpatient program. She completed five weeks of IOP, coming four days a week for three hours a day. Then she completed a non-intensive outpatient program coming one day a week for 12 weeks. After completing that, um, she was still on Suboxone and she was able to locate employment and then she had a baby. And so she had to come off of the Suboxone and go on Subutex because the Suboxone will harm the fetus. So the baby is now, uh, I believe, a year old. Brittany is now uh, two years into sobriety. Brittany actually comes up to our detox unit every other Thursday and shares her success story with other patients that are in the unit. And she also is now a chemical dependency counselor assistant. So she has that certification through the state, through the Ohio Chemical Dependencies Professionals Board. And now she volunteers for Rosary Hall one day a week. So when we talk about what works and what doesn't work, here's an individual who followed the instructions to the letter. 
her motivational level was very, very high. And we were able to get her treatment exactly when she wanted it and not put her on a waiting list. So it's important to understand in my final thoughts that from time to time, we always talk about or hear about the people who lost their lives, the negative stories, um, the people who relapsed. Uh, we hear a lot about that. But I think we need to highlight some of the success stories. Uh, there's nothing I can do to bring back my sister, Carmela. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to bring back Sam. But you and I and a host of many others have found a way to carry the message that treatment works, people do recover, and that we want people to know that they don't have to go through what you and I went through and our families went through. They can intervene early on. And Brittany is a prime example of that. Uh, we have recovering people who work on the staff here at Rosary Hall. All of our coaches in our detox center, they have to be in recovery to hold that position. So we have walking examples in treatment centers today to let others know that they too can recover. And in my final thought, I would just like to remind the listeners that alcohol and drug addiction is a disease. And educating ourselves about addiction I believe is key to our children and their future. Also reducing the stigma surrounding addiction is also vital to people having the willingness to enter treatment, Greg, and admit their problems to their families and the people that can help with treatment like you and I and Rosary Halls and other treatment facilities, the Adams Board, uh, wherever there's people reach out for help. Medication-assisted treatment works, but it works much, much better with residential treatment and or intensive outpatient treatment. I don't believe, and our doctors don't believe, in putting somebody on medication-assisted treatment without intensive outpatient or residential treatment alongside of it. And lastly, I would urge our doctors to educate themselves more about opiate addiction and the dangers of over-prescribing. Addiction is treatable and treatment works. And if you're ready and willing to turn your life around and you're listening today and you need some help, the number again is 216-363-2580, extension 4. Outstanding. Well, thank you, Orlando. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. We've been visiting today with Orlando Howard. Orlando is the manager of outpatient services at Rosary Hall, St. Vincent Charity Medical Center. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. We thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. 
As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.